Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. everyone, it's Nina Pantic here on the Tennis.com podcast and I just wanted to share a little disclaimer before we get into this episode with USTA wheelchair national manager and head coach Jason Harnett. This episode was recorded and filmed at the USTA national campus long before the coronavirus pandemic. So that's one big note. And it was also recorded before the USTA announced huge changes to the player development department. Hard news aside, we're going to hear from Jason about what it's like to be an able-bodied coach working with elite wheelchair athletes. Let's get into the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. We have an incredible episode lined up for you. We are in Lake Nona at the USTA National Campus. I'm one of your hosts, Nina Pantic, and I'm joined by a co-host, Irina Falcone. Hey, guys. How's it going? And we're joined by our special guest, Jason Harnett. Thank you for having me, ladies. Thank you. And also in studio with us is Coach Mick, helping us mix the studio sound. So today we're going to talk about wheelchair tennis. Jason is the national head coach of the USTA. He's been in that position since 2016, I want to say. Correct. But he's been working with the USTA wheelchair program since 98. Yep. So Jason, tell us a little bit about your background in tennis and specifically how you got into wheelchair tennis. Wow, it's a big, it's a, it's a long story. It's not that long. I'm, I'm not that young. But, uh, you know, we as a family moved from Chicago, uh, was it 1978, uh, to Southern California. So I pretty much grew up in Orange County, in Irvine, California. And my father was a football player and he loved football, but he thought, well, my sons are going to be smaller guys. So maybe football is not for them. So maybe tennis, maybe baseball. So we, we played a bunch of different sports, but tennis really grabbed hold by about high school. Um, and so, you know, as a kid, we grew up at the Rack Club of Irvine, which is a, a really nice club in Southern California. And every year uh, when we joined there, I think I was about 12 or 13 years old, and the Wheelchair U.S. Open was there every year for about 13 or 14 years. And so for me as a 12, 13-year-old kid walking in and all of a sudden there's two or 300 people in wheelchairs, you know, playing recreational tennis and elite-level tennis in the same place – you took you took notice of that. It was hard not to, you know, stop and take a look around. And at that time, I remember always reading the L.A. Times or the Warren County Register, and and you always saw Brad Parks and Randy Snow's name everywhere that week. You know, during the U.S. Open, I always thought it was cool because it was our club. Uh, but it was Brad and Randy were the were the stars, the legends of the sport, and Brad being the founder of the sport. Um, I didn't know that at that time. I just, you know, it must be a pretty good player. And so you go through that for that for a few years. You know, I played high school tennis, junior tennis, uh, played college tennis up at the University of Washington in Seattle. And then I came back and started coaching. And I remember my first real adult coaching gig was at the Vic Braden Tennis College in Cota de Casa, which is uh, just south of Irvine. And Vic had asked me, you know, can you help a couple of local wheelchair athletes set up a ball machine? 
right? I just thought, this is cool. I'll help these guys. We started talking wheelchair tennis, and we started, and I explained, I said, I remember seeing, you know, maybe not you guys, but I saw players uh, when I was about 12, 13 years old, and they, you know, explained, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's one of the biggest events in the world, and so it kind of, you know, got me refreshed and, and getting to know these guys, and uh, a local pro at, in Mission Viejo, California, which is right next door to Cotto, uh, asked me, he wanted to hire me because I could play and help him with his collegiate players and his, his young pros. And he said, I want to start a wheelchair program. And I want to start it on Thursday nights at 6.30. Are you interested in helping me? And I was like, that sounds great. And then I explained how, you know, the same thing I just said. I saw it as a kid and, and Vic had me, you know, help out with uh, some of the local players. And he said, let's do this together. And we ended up doing that for 14 years together. It was rain or shine, Thursday night, 6.30 to 9, going out to dinner afterwards with everyone, being social. And what you, you realize at that point was these folks just wanted to play tennis like anybody else. A lot of these folks worked. Uh, I think there's always a misconception that, you know, folks in chairs don't work and they don't. No, these are, these are just people who just found a place that they can be around other people who have a similar situation. Can, there's an understanding there. There's a kindred understanding that, you know, as able-bodied people, maybe we don't quite get or understand. And they were able to just uh, come to a place once a week and, and spend time together. So as that progressed, you know, 1998 comes along and the USTA had now become the national governing body for wheelchair tennis. It was run before that by Brad and Wendy Parks, the National Foundation for Wheelchair Tennis, uh, for 20 years. And I think the sport had grown at that point to the point where they were like, okay, it's bigger than we can handle so that's where the NGB comes in. The USTA comes in and takes over. And I think at the beginning, the USTA really didn't understand what they were doing. I mean, I, I can say that from the outside. They just didn't have a grasp on what wheelchair tennis was, how big it could be, uh, what kind of growth are we talking about. And, uh, and, so, and, I, and I thought about it that we didn't have any people in chairs on the inside of the USTA. And everybody who was on the board of directors for the National Foundation for Wheelchair Tennis, except for maybe one or two people, were all in chairs. And so there was an emotional invested interest in, in being successful. Not that the USA didn't want to be successful, but it just I don't, I don't think they knew where to go with it at the beginning. And it's taken a long time to get that on track. And, and uh, you know, Dan James took over this position uh, in 2003, and that's when I think our, our division really popped and started taking off. And I, and I don't think, yeah, anything really started really moving except for the past few years here with the, the national campus. So I know that's a big start. Yeah, that yeah. Was a great start. that's an amazing yeah. start. Yeah. Um, what would you say is like the biggest difference? You said that uh, in the last few years, there's definitely been a lot of change. What's been the most significant, I think, for you? Yeah, I think for me, getting on the inside, I was always on the outside as a national coach, uh, contracted coach, so you know decisions are made and, and, and you understand why and sometimes you're not sure. And, and you get inside the USTA and you see how this place operates and it's, it's, it's a big machine, right? And, and we're a small department. And you, you, you always feel like we've been overlooked for a very long time. We had a very difficult time engaging with player development for various reasons, but they're wonderful people. And it's just a disconnect. And I you're trying to figure out why, why that is. And then you get in and you realize, you know, they're a machine over there running. And here we come, you know, 2016 here in, in Lake Nona. And, and I told Martin Blackman, I said, if we had come in here with the approach that we want to ram player development from the side and say, here we are, wheelchair tennis, take us in, right? I don't think that would have gone over very well. So we realize the collaborative nature of everything that goes on here at the campus is vital for our success. 
that we've got to make sure that we're engaged in every conversation about tennis, whether it's junior tennis, adult tennis, uh, league play, NTRP, player development, collegiate, all of it has to involve wheelchair. And we realized it hadn't been. It was always like, oh, wheelchair, what can we do with that? By that time, a lot of the times it was too late. And so it's not that you're an afterthought, it's just it wasn't thought of as being part of the template. And I really think that was our goal here coming to the campus was we are going to, number one, be involved in every conversation. It doesn't have to be where we're involved with everything, but we do have to be thought of, and that is what's happened. But with your day-to-day life, you're still getting on a tennis court and coaching, right? It's changed. I mean, my life from being a teaching pro for over 20 years, coaching collegiate players, coaching professional players, able-bodied, and then on top of that, our Paralympians as well, you know, a mix of all of that to now very corporate, very managerial. I mean, we're running a department and, and, and having to have the vision of well, what does that look like in every coaching manual, every co- collegiate course, anything engaging with the USPTA, anything engaging, anything off the court, that's my job. And then when players come here to train, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, uh, that's also my job. So I do get a little mix on and off the court, but my on-court time has cut down immensely compared to my old life. But you've always been an able-bodied coach working with wheelchair athletes. Is that ever a disconnect or is that very common for coaches not to be in wheelchairs? It's a great question. I think coaches, um, you know, and I'm the same. So when I first started, you look at disability and you look at the wheelchair and you see those two things as the scariest thing in the world. Right. I don't get disability and the wheelchair looks complicated. How does it set up and how is it set up differently for every person that that plays, which is true. The chair sets up totally differently. And so I think like any teacher, you're going to have to sit back and and stare at it for a little bit and, and try and understand everybody's situation might be a little different. And you've got to be patient and you've got to be willing to work and adapt with that athlete. If you're not that type of person, it may not be for you. Um, but I think if you're a teacher, a true teacher, uh, wheelchair tennis is fantastic. And there's a lot of things that cross over from the able-bodied side. That's, it's not that complicated. Um, just a very random question. Not a lot of people understand wheelchair tennis. I'm, I'm one of them. I don't know a lot about it. But as a coach, do you ever feel that you have to get in a chair as well and hit with them to kind of see what they're – not exactly what they're going through, but sure. just to make sure that you're getting your point across? Because right. Yeah, I, I totally, yeah, absolutely. You have to dive into the world as much as you can, right? I don't have a disability, so I can't say, like you said, I, I know exactly what it feels like or not feel like or what my limitations could be. I think those are always questions that are asked. And I think getting in a chair, um, it's like being a coach. I'm right-handed, but I, I'm coaching a lefty, right? I've got to make sure that I can demonstrate things left-handed. I don't have to be 100% proficient, but I do have to be able to show what I want as a coach and I think as a wheelchair tennis coach you have to have some comfort being in a chair and understanding mobility patterns understanding uh, chair setup and that takes time right that's not overnight and I don't think the cool thing is I don't think any of the players that you would work with at the beginning expect that of you they understand that wheelchair tennis is going to be new to you and that you have a learning curve just like they do right and so we always said it's 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 much different in wheelchair tennis in that the players tend to be the teachers as well. They really do mentor the coaches about disability, about chair setup, about those things that, I mean, how could any able-bodied coach walk out and, and watch a wheelchair tennis player and say, yeah, I totally get that chair. I, I completely understand why your back's to the court and why you're heading away at a 45-degree I mean, I understand that right away. Of course not. 
you have to understand because there's a lot of there's a lot of instinct from us as able-bodied people that interferes with wheelchair tennis and the way it works, especially in mobility. And I think that's the that's the tricky part is a neutral position in wheelchair tennis is actually with your back to your opponent at a 45 degree angle pushing away from the baseline. And as an able-bodied coach, that sounds ridiculous. But when you realize that's actually the ready position, it's a neutral ready position, ready to go both directions. And, and, and once you grasp that, it's absolutely fascinating as a coach and it grabs you because it's, and again, as able-bodied people, that's all we know is able-bodied tennis, all we know. And when it's hammered into your life decade after decade, and then you get in a chair and then you start working with the athletes, it's just, it's so different and so cool uh, and so challenging that I think uh, everybody should do it. I mean, it's, it's honest to God, you don't. And I say it this way. I always say, you may have heard about it, heard about it. Uh, and then secondly, you may have seen it. Third, you may actually get on a court and hit with someone in a chair. But the fourth and final step is getting in the chair. Once you get in the chair, it changes everything. Because you, you can go out and watch the best players in the world at the Grand Slams and go, oh my gosh, I mean, these guys are unbelievable. But you don't get it until it's visceral, until you feel it. And when you get in the chair and you see how difficult it is to push a chair with a, a racket in your hand, you start to have a completely different level of, of you know respect for the players. And you're not even talking about disability. You're just talking about the difficulty of pushing a wheelchair and playing tennis. It's so difficult. I mean, tennis is hard. It's hard to be good at it. But man, in a wheelchair, it's such a challenge. Just the chair itself is so challenging. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Hey everyone, we're here with Jason Harnett talking all things wheelchair tennis and few challenges and biggest rewards of his job. Keep listening. You're talking about watching players and thinking that they're amazing and they're great. When you go to a Grand Slam, you see this. What differentiates someone who's won Grand Slams? Like we have, you know, you've worked with David Wagner. Esther Vergeer is one of the most famous wheelchair athletes of all sure. time. What is the what's the difference between someone like that and someone who's able to rally? Like what is it? The way they hit their forehand, the way they move, their chair maneuvering, like what are the keys to being amazing? Yeah, I think it's like process. I mean, you can talk to Dr. Larry Lauer, who's our mental <laughs> skills here. I mean, everything's about process, right? Uh, it's just, it's professionalism. You know, that's, that doesn't matter if you're in a chair or not. It's really just about how she, you know, I, I use Esther as an example. David's an example. You know, these are two athletes who've committed their lives to the sport, right? I mean, David lives at the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista down in San Diego. He's been there for years, and he knows that a place like that will provide him the resources that he's going to need to be as professional as he can in the wheelchair tennis world. Esther, I mean, outrageous. Her professionalism, that was, I mean, and, and it, not to, to stay on her that long, but I think, you know, someone who had a 470-match winning streak, what a lot of people don't know, is before that streak began, she had an almost 200-match win streak going or something like that, and then she took a loss, uh, and then began a new streak of 470. I mean, so many things have to go right. There's so many, I mean, you're talking no sickness, no injuries, no chair breaking at the airport. I mean, so many things went right for her. I mean, think about that. You're talking over a decade. But it, it's not luck, right? She's professional. 
She's prepared. She does everything right. She trains with the right people. She knows when to be social, when not to be social. That's like any professional athlete. They know when it's time to turn it on and they know when it's time to relax. So, I mean, for them, yeah, I would say it's absolutely no different than their able-bodied counterparts, right? But there's a difference in terms of tournaments they have that they can play, the prize money they're getting. Can you make a living as a wheelchair athlete? Do they all have side jobs? You know, I, I know that both of them have committed to it, but... Is it sponsors? Like, how do you how do you it's, become yeah. a well paid? It's a huge challenge, right? I mean, it's a it's a discussion. You know, being one of the longest standing coaches, it's hard to believe. But um, you know, I'm on an ITF task force helping them uh, look at the future of the sport, and I know the the financial health of the wheelchair tennis tour is a huge challenge. Uh, thank goodness for Uniqlo. Uniqlo has come forward and they've sponsored the entire tour. You see, you have some major corporations that are involved, and, and, and thank goodness for them because they keep the, the, you know, the sport afloat. And for players to make a living, I think it's a huge challenge. At the top, you know, some of the best players are now you know, starting to get uh, sponsorships that able-bodied pros are getting. I use Uniqlo as an example. You know, Roger Federer, Kenny Shikori. Well, we also have Shingo Cunieda, who is arguably the Roger Federer of the wheelchair tennis world, um, along with Esther. Um, and then Gordon Reed, who you've interviewed on this on this podcast. And I think when you look at the whole scope of the sport, is if the able-bodied world can start to look at opportunities to integrate where it's reasonable, the exposure level for players like Shingo and Gordon and Esther and David, they, they go up and up. And with that comes, I think, the opportunities for sponsorship. That's where players can start to make a living. Now, the prize money at the Grand Slam events has only gone up. And it's also, it's becoming more competitive where I think we were behind for years. And, you know, with Katrina Adams in here, Katrina was just like, uh, we're not last anymore. We need to do this right. And we got the bump. We've gotten a bump three years in a row. And I think all the other Grand Slams are seeing that and going, okay, we need to we need to start picking it up here. And I know the wheelchair athletes know it's not a revenue side of the sport, right? You know, people aren't going to the U.S. Open to watch Shingo or David Wagner. They, I mean, they may know who they are in passing, but they're going to see the big guns, right? The able-bodied players. And and the wheelchair events there are kind of part of the show, right? And so the prize money is just simply not going to be as large. Now, the way the tour is set up, the, the most successful athletes on tour are starting to make a pretty nice living. But again, it, it's not much different than the able-bodied tour, right? The elite are getting paid. And as you get lower in the rankings, it gets tougher and tougher and tougher to survive. And you scrap and you scrounge and you do what you can to stay afloat. It's absolutely no different on a smaller level, obviously, uh, but it's the same, same struggle. I would probably say, though, that a top, a, a 99 ranked able-bodied player, how much, are, how much more do you think they're making compared to the 99th ranked wheelchair player in the world? It's night and day. It's yeah, and day. not even okay. close. Yeah, I would say, yeah, even, even a, a player ranked 100 in the world, from a from a prize money standpoint, not sponsorship, because I do know Shingo and Gordon, uh, and and you know Dita DeGroote, some of the some of the top players on both sides are making some real money. Dylan Alcott, out of Australia, mm-hmm. I mean he's he's like a he's like a juggernaut. I mean that guy, mm-hmm. uh, and he's making money. But again, that's more him segueing into the able-bodied world and making money. He's figured that out. Uh, but our top players. Um, from a prize money standpoint, if they're having a great year, yeah, I would say probably 150 in the world is close to what our top is. 100 in the world is probably close to what our top five are making. 
if we're, to put it in perspective, the first round loser of most Grand Slams is making more than the men or women's winner of the wheelchair event. Right, first round loser on the able body set, sometimes even qualifying. They're making more money as a third round lo- loss than the winner of the wheelchair event. And I know that's difficult for the players, but I think the players understand it's an evolution, that it is getting better. It is, there is getting, there's not only more attention, but I think the NGBs or the owners of the Grand Slams, we happen to own the US Open, are starting to figure out that we need to start pressing our professional you know, wheelchair athletes more and more because para-sport, I will say, is not going away and it's only growing worldwide. And so I, I've, you know, from our perspective, the USTA's perspective, we need to be at the forefront. We need to be leading that charge, not playing from behind and reacting to what other para-sports are doing. We have such a wonderful opportunity here to be that, to be that leader. Um, and so I think everybody's starting to figure out that para-sport and especially every Paralympic cycle that comes around, it becomes more popular, but then it fades out a little bit. So we were trying to push it so when there's momentum coming out of Tokyo, that we're able to ride that wave and, and continue to you know make the sport better for everybody. I want to get into the technical aspects of the sport as well, so everyone listening can understand what's the differences between able-bodied and a wheelchair. If you're going to try and sum it up to someone who's never watched it before and doesn't yeah. understand why the ball is bouncing twice. Well, I think the genius of Brad Parks and Jeff Minnebreaker back in the beginning, back in the late 70s, uh, not to rehash Brad, but I mean, Brad got hurt. He was 19 years old, a young athlete, uh, uh, skier, you know, was doing some freestyle jumping and, and, and got hurt. Uh, but they made a decision early to make the adaptations to the sport as minimal as possible. And I think that was genius. I think a lot of people ask when they see it, well, are the courts smaller? Are the balls different? Are the rackets different? It's everything different. And I think they had enough sense, even at that young of an age. I know Jeff was older. He was a, you know, a rec therapist for Brad. Um, they were smart. They just said, we're going to add a bounce, two bounces. And let's leave it at that, and let's see where that goes. That gives us a little bit more time. Now, the two bounces at that time was because the quality of chair they were using was just a clunky, you know, everyday chair that was almost hospital chair-like. You know, this is before sport chairs really were engineered and designed. I know uh, Jeff was one of those first guys who was engineering sport chairs. Um, But they saw that as, and and again, what it does, it allowed wheelchair tennis to integrate into the able-bodied world right away. So, you know, Irina can, can go play with someone in a chair right now. All that happens is you get one bounce, they get two bounces. First bounce has to be inside the the. In the parameters of the court, second bounce can be anywhere. You don't have to take a second bounce, right? right? You can you can do anything else. And again, the players of today are much faster than that time. So you'll see a lot of players now taking a lot of bounce, you know, one bounce tennis. And I think it's just because of the speed of the sport and it's part of the tactics, taking time away from your opponents by taking it on one versus two. And you'll see the two bounce really used in more of a defensive play. Uh, but for your average person watching, sometimes that second bounce is a little strange. You're like, is the point over? If they don't know. So it's important that, you know, this is like this, what we're doing right now. People listening are now going to go, okay, second bounce is legal. And, and that's important. If you play in a league and you play against someone in a wheelchair, you better remember they get a second bounce and not stop playing because they're going to track that ball down and put it in play and no one's going to be ready, right? So that education is all part of it. But I think what people, we always say people watch it for the first time. They do see the technical difficulty of the chair, but I think they also see a, a regular racket, a regular ball, um, and you know players are just enjoying it for the same reasons they enjoy playing. So hopefully 
we always say about 15 minutes, you stop seeing the chair, right? You just start seeing tennis. That's all you see. And it is true. 15 minutes, that's all it takes. And all of a sudden, you're engaged uh, in the play. It's really cool. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey listeners, you're listening to the Tennis.com podcast with Jason Harnett. We're talking about how he got into wheelchair tennis coaching and what has kept him involved in wheelchair coaching for so long. Keep listening. We were just watching a few players out here, and I was actually commenting to Nina. I was like, they have more wrist rotation than I do, yeah. more shape on their ball than I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're unbelievable athletes. Unbelievable it's- athletes. And they, again, the level of play is so high. And I think for someone like yourself, you know, you guys are players, right? And you're like, you know, really good tennis. And then you see it. It's like, you know, good tennis. It doesn't matter if it's in a chair or not. You're like, that's really good tennis. And you look at the physicality. You know, these athletes are so strong. Like our... our Paralympic player, you know, you've met Mackenzie Solden, who trains here with me, and you, know, you go in the gym and you watch Mackenzie rip out twenty pull-ups, and you're like, you got to be kidding me! It's mind blowing yeah, to me. Her, I was in watching her, her in her chair. Yeah, yeah. And to you're be like, able to do that, oh my god! Wait, she's yeah. still in the chair. Yes, oh, yeah. she, she lifts the chair. She go the up chair. there and do a pull-up with the chair and just like knock him out, no problem. Knock him out. Because I asked Satoshi Ochi, who is our head strength and conditioning coach here, I go, who's the strongest uh, female athlete? He goes, uh, Mackenzie. Is not even close. No doubt. No doubt. No and doubt. again, her life now. Apparently, you know, Mackenzie, and a very important person historically here at the USTA. I mean, Mackenzie Solon's just uh, not only a wonderful person, but here is someone who comes in with a master's degree in marketing and advertising uh, from the University of Alabama, is a Paralympic gold medalist in basketball in Rio in 2016, but was also a Parapan gold medalist in 2011, which qualified her for tennis for London. So you're talking a multiple Paralympian in two sports, which is rare enough, but now she's training here every day. And so, and she's not a kid. You know, that's another aspect, which is great for us to have. It's not a 20 year old coming in, no offense to 20 year olds, but from a life experience standpoint, Mackenzie's head and shoulders above most. So she comes in having worked in the real world, trying to get back into sports, trying to, I kind of you know, dragged her back into the tennis world a little bit, but I think she's loving it. And she's loving being here and being around you guys training. And uh, I think she just loves being a part of it. And it just represents what we hope this place will be for us, you know, is having able-bodied and, and our para-sport athletes, our, you know, our Paralympic track athletes training side by side. And after a while, it's no longer, hey, it's Mackenzie in the wheelchair. It's Mackenzie. I don't even see the chair. Hey, I already know what's going on. Hey, Mackenzie, what's going on? That's what we want. No more cameras. No more interviews, just McKenzie training. That's the that's when you know you've arrived, right? She's just one of one of the athletes here. And that's what we want. So it's probably also really great for the kids that train here and the pros that train here to see those kind of athletes so dedicated and nothing stops them. Because I know we keep saying you don't see the chair, but the first thing people think when they see someone in a chair is, How did you get there? And I think that some athletes probably want to leave that behind no matter what their story is. Do you, do you get that sense? Yeah. I, you hear it both ways. I, I argue with the players a little bit about this because the great Randy Snow had a thing, you know, leave your sympathy at the door. You know, when you come through to watch us, you know, we're athletes first. 
look at us as athletes. And I think there's no question. You go out and watch Gustavo Fernandez, and you look at him, and you're like, uh, it's Atlas. You know, the guy's unbelievable. And you and you look at someone like that, and you go, look at the work that guy's put in just by looking at him. You, there's no doubt, a lot of work, a lot of respect. But I think we, on the able body side, I think it's very important we're all interested in know how'd you end up in a chair? I mean, that's always the question. And I know the athletes rarely want to go there and say, ah, oh, I got to tell my story again. I go, but that's a huge marketing piece of it in selling the sport because people want to know. Now, it doesn't mean you got to sit there and dwell on it because you want to talk about the tennis. But I think there's a way to balance it and, and learn about the athletes both on and off the court. What happened? Okay, great. You've overcome that. But you're right. Able-bodied players watch that. And I was talking to a group just a few weeks ago, and I said, you know what? You know, persistence is always a word we use a lot of, but it's also at the same time, it's like, we don't want to hear the excuses. I don't want to hear, you know, if I, if I told you the story of Mackenzie and what she's been through and had to endure as such a young person for the past 20 years, 25 years of her life, there are no excuses for any of us, right? I mean, it's just like what she's had to endure not only to then try and, you know, have a, a wonderful life and have a functional life, but at the same time play it at an elite level of two sports. It's so, and, and they hate, they, and I say they hate the word inspiring, but it's inspiring. I, I, I'll say it. I mean, it's like you see that, you're like, my goodness, what am I, am I complaining about? <laughs> and it's not that, you know, my life's better than, it's not at all. Not, I don't mean it that way. I just mean, man, they have gotten through stuff that most of us hopefully will never endure, and they've taken it to a whole new level. And it's just an honor to be around a lot of these athletes and, and these people. They're just wonderful people, so very lucky. I think it's right that you use the word inspiring. I'm sure it inspires you to get up in the morning and come train them. Like that's my three kids inspire me. I mean, <laughs> I've got three little ones, and that 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 really your it's like anything, right? You prioritize. Your athletes are very very important. Your you know your world's important. I have family, and that's a whole nother level, right? Um, but I I always say I feel like. Um, you know, there are ghosts chasing me in some ways. I, I, I always say, you know, I'm an able-bodied guy in a leadership position on the para-sport side. And I get, a, and I know there's been probably some talk, how come there isn't someone in a wheelchair in this position? Why is that? You know, and, and you wonder, you go, why is that? Well, you want to have, you know, obviously, you want to have someone who's hopefully ready for the position. It's a big position. Um, there's lots to do, and, and I do hope that there will be a point where this position will be run by someone in a chair, someone who's gone through the paces like I have in the tennis industry. They understand what they're up against, and they're ready to take it on because you want to have ownership of your sport, right? You want to take ownership. Um, so, yeah, some huge challenges, but, um, yeah, it does inspire. I mean, every day you're just like you're helping a population that wants to play tennis like anybody else, right? Pro side grassroots side doesn't really matter collegiate tennis huge push for us so many aspects to it the fact that you were introduced to wheelchair tennis at such a young age do you ever kind of think about the fact that maybe you were meant to have this job i don't know it's tough maybe i mean it came around right it came back around twice Right. And like, yeah, may, maybe this is where I belong and maybe this is what I was meant to help out and, and do in the sport of tennis. I mean, tennis has done so much for us. Uh, and then you see a population like this, you know, starving for, you know, just people to become engaged and stuff. And I saw from a coaching aspect, there were so many, you know, people helping out at the beginning that maybe weren't professional coaches, maybe, you know, had that background. Uh, and, and really at the beginning in 98, there were four of us. 
who came in were professional coaches. I think that was the first time the USDA had, you know, thought, wow, wow, we have a coaching staff. We have an official coaching staff. And maybe that was the time where you thought, okay, this is our time. This is our time to really push the sport in a way it had. And when I mentioned having ghosts chase me, I mean the Brad Parks, the Randy Snows, the Estevere Gears. It's been handed off to us, right? The torch has been passed to us. It's our time to run with it, right? And so now we see the opportunities here. And it's like you, you just you tell yourself every day, don't blow it. You know, really stay on track, be thoughtful. Um, even if, and, and I, I'm not one to be quick to react. I like to think things through and be process driven. So, I'm, you know, we're looking five to ten years out. And what does that mean? What does that mean from a foundational standpoint? Because I don't want to throw stuff out there just to get it out there and then end up having to pull it back and clean it up and reintroduce it. I really want to avoid that. Do it once. Do it right, and then and then keep moving. So. All right, I want to end on one last question. Again, this is just for the general population. If they want to know more about wheelchair tennis, what advice would you give them? Because if they're, if they're afraid they're going to step in it and say something offensive or say something mm-hmm. wrong, which I think is something that's natural when you see someone in a chair, what's your advice for someone trying to be like, look, I want to know more without being rude? Well, I think you can always approach them. I don't think the first thing you do is you walk up to someone and say, what happened to you? You know, what, you know, that's, I think you start any conversation as naturally as you can. And, and I think, uh, what I learned early was I was trying to be helpful, right? I, I remember working with an older athlete and he was trying to get in his car and, you know, the whole transferring process from chair to car. And then what do you do with the chair, right? He's got to break the chair down, put the chair in the passenger seat. There's a breaking down of the chair. There's a whole process. And what did I do? I jumped in, grabbed his chair and wanted to help and, and what I did was I completely disrupted his process, right? Because there's a process to this. And you learn that quickly going, you know what? Unless they need help, and they're, it's obvious they're going to fall or something's going to, you know, drop in their groceries, leave them alone. If they need help, they'll ask. And I know that's the first step, that first introduction. Like, because everybody wants to jump in and help, and you don't realize sometimes you're disruptive to their process. So you leave it alone. Um, but again, you know, when I give interviews and stuff, you always talk about the person first before the disability. Because we, 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 you know, stop talking about our disabled athletes, you know, athletes with a disability. It seems like a simple correction, but I think it makes a little difference. Putting the person first, I, I think that's what I would want, right? Talk to me, not my disability. Um, so the little things like that. But if you're trying to learn about the sport specifically, gosh, I mean, we're so lucky with technology now with YouTube and so many videos put online. You can just go look up wheelchair tennis. And you can watch the Paralympic Games from London, from Beijing, from Athens. You can go back in Sydney. They're all there. There's just videos there, and you can just watch. And you'll learn everything you need to know about tennis by just watching. So most of us coaches do anyway. We watch, we observe, we, and then formulate an opinion that we hope is correct. You know, But uh, anybody can do that. All right. Yeah. Well, I think we've learned a lot, a lot about perspective, a lot about this sport that we're hoping grows and gets bigger. And we honestly like this has been a great episode with uh, Jason Harnett. Thank, thank you, you, ladies, very much. Appreciate and just it. on a personal note, I think you were meant for the job. You're doing thank a great you. job. Thank you. Keep thank it up. You very much. Keep it up, Coach. All right. Thanks thank for listening you. to the Tennis.com podcast. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as tennis.com slash podcasts. You can also see the videos of our episodes on Tennis Channel's YouTube page and tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, 
Editor and audio designer and video editor, Christina Koseva. Producers, Alexa March and Sean O'Malley. And executive producers, Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.